bitterness, betrayal, telling the secrets of the business to the press, and maybe even a story about cannibalism? All this and more in part two of the story of Clarence Whistler. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves, pro wrestling history nerds. OMG, we're back. Well, I'm not really back. I've been here the whole time. I mean, this is my house, but you're back. But you're not really here. You're over there. How does this work? What am I talking about? Who am I? My name is Nick Gossert. I am a pro wrestling promoter. I am a pro wrestling booker. But more importantly for today, I am a pro wrestling history nerd. And I am here with a man who is certainly not two six-year-olds in a trench coat trying to see an R-rated movie. It's Chongo Bronson. How are you? Not two six-year-olds trying to see an R-rated movie in a trench coat anymore. Shout out to Morgan when we used to try to do that back in the day. Chongo digresses. Hello, nerds. Welcome to the Hippodrome Technodrome um, Line uh, Express. Yes, capital. I'm just glad you were about to say you. it was about you growing up and no longer being a six-year-old in a trench coat. As opposed to a wizard fusing two children into a grown-up and that's what you became. That would be terrifying. I'm glad it's not real. I'm glad it's not the case. But one thing that is terrifying, one thing that is very real, is the story of Clarence Whistler. We're here with part two of the story of the Kansas Cyclone. And part one was full of booze, full of violence, full of craziness, full of showbiz razzmatazz. And I'm excited to get on to part two. Uh, we're not in Kansas Cyclone anymore. Never pick a fight with a man named Clarence. That's what Chongo knows. As uh, stated before, it is a true then as yes. it is today and will be tomorrow and possibly next Wednesday. I'm not sure. We are not there yet. So if you haven't listened to part one, go back, listen to part one. It'll uh, make part two make more sense, if that makes any sense, if anything ever makes any sense. And the reason we are doing this series is, you know, we did cover a lot of Clarence Whistler's story in our very first two episodes when we talked about William Muldoon. And that's what I like what we're doing lately is we're taking the stories we covered early on, we're approaching them from a different lens, we're approaching them through the eyes of a different person, and it gives me the chance to do more in-depth research instead of just reading a book or two and taking the author's word on it. So it is cool to kind of build the world through uh, through different eyes, build the world through more research and just kind of and give it more depth and make it a little more interesting and hopefully as interesting for you as it is for us. And it's also funny because even on this retrospective, time gives you a different perspective because one pairing that I think has a good parallel to uh, Muldoon and Whistler is like uh, Hulk and Sheik. It's like when you're young, you think Hulk's the good guy and Sheik's this evil tyrant. And now it's like we've done the show for a couple years. We realize Muldoon's pretty much the asshole and Clarence Whistler's just a badass. And if you think Muldoon is an asshole now, boy, wait till we get deep into this one. So last time we left off with Whistler being drunk on stage, starting some problems, getting into a fist fight with Muldoon. So we're going to kind of pick up where we left off. And now we are on March 5th, 1882, where I found an advertisement for the Muldoon and Whistler combination performing at the Cincinnati Coliseum, according to the Cincinnati commercial, featuring Muldoon, Whistler, Cristal, weightlifters, gymnastics, jugglers, comedians, and punsters. I like that they break down the difference between a punster and a comedian. So we're not talking like... We're not fusing the two. I assume the comedians were probably a little more uh, vaudeville, a little more slapstick. 
but I want to know what asshole is going to go up and tell puns for, you know, 15 minutes between the jugglers and the weightlifters. What a weird spot to get on the show. I'd love to see a punster at Triple L, honestly, man. When was the last time somebody booked a punster? It, it never will happen, as the booker, I can guarantee you that. But to kind of give this a little more context, if you don't remember the first part, Whistler and Muldoon formed a company. They were going cross-country, giving demonstrations of physical culture, of weightlifting, and all these various other sports, kind of showing what, what athletics could be in the year 1882. They were varied, they were weird, and apparently in between them we had comedians and punsters. God help anyone who had to sit through that. Can you imagine the hipsters that go to punsters? And like, anyway, just, I don't know. There's a, there's a very scary subculture there. From the Cincinnati Commerce, August 26th, 1882. Cannon defeated by Whistler at Kansas City. On the 25th, Whistler beat Tom Cannon under catch-as-catch-can rules, winning the second and third fall, then challenged Joe Acton under Greco-Roman rules, from $1,000 to $5,000 aside, again, I want to know what the price qualifiers are. Because imagine if you go up to like the window at Burger King and say, Hi, I would like a Whopper. And they go, cool, it's $1,000 to $5,000. Well, first of all, that's too much for a hot hamburger. But second, it's like, what are the qualifiers? What does one get me versus what the other one does? Maybe, maybe lowball the negotiation? I don't know. I'm not in charge of these things, but it seems like a weird financial move. And it also seems like a weird setup for such a financial move. You think if you were going to beat somebody and use that as a platform to call somebody else out, you'd have like your, your you know, your your master villain speech a little more prepared or at least have your financials a little more ballpark than that. That's a big dip, especially 1880 money. We're talking like doubloons and shit, right? And like treasure chests. From the Wellsville, Allegheny, Country Republican on September 8th, 1882, um, it was a fluff piece about William Muldoon after he appeared at a fair with a badly put together biography of him. It recounts his big matches, including one against Whistler that, quote, ended in being declared a draw after six hours of struggle and Whistler has never contested for the belt since, though he has traveled with Muldoon simply to give exhibitions. And this I loved later in the article, quote, There is a certain low element in New York City that Muldoon would never have anything to do with. The result was the rough sought revenge, and they thought they had discovered in Whistler a man to wreck revenge on Muldoon. The article lays out a conspiracy of backers and secret trainers to turn Whistler into the man who would destroy Muldoon in the ring, who in turn had not been training seriously or, quote, did not put himself in trim for the contest before their match that began at 8.45 and did not end until they turned off the gas lights in the morning. So that was a match we covered in the previous episode, but it's always fun to see how the story changes totally. over the course of the months and as it gets halfway across the country where there was this nefarious plot to train up this contender to take Muldoon down a peg. And makes it way more interesting. And when you have to overpaint pro wrestling with bullshit to make it even more interesting, God bless you. Yeah, they painted it like the mob like was sponsoring his training camp or some shit to take out Muldoon or you know what I'm saying? Like he was he was literally funded by evil. But I also like the the term what do you 
He didn't come in on the trim or whatever they said. He didn't make the trim. Yeah, he did not put himself in trim for the contest. Yeah, you know, if you don't put yourself in trim for the contest, you're probably going to have a bad time. Everybody's fighting for that trim. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey well played, old chap. From the Cincinnati Commercial, October 6th, 1882, an article about a match between John Thurr and Andre Cristal, but has weird stories of a wrestler named Jucian Marais who traveled through the West wrestling under Andre Cristal's name and, quote, his defeat brought the real Cristal into discredit. Marais finally struck Denver and Cristal under the assumed name, that of Giuseppe Antonio, arranged a match, he punished Mare terribly, and then revealed himself. The article covers the Thur-Cristal match. Thur apparently injured his shoulder and could not continue, and the match was awarded to Cristal. According to the article, quote, At this stage of the proceedings, the greatest uproar ensued, the audience claiming they had been defrauded out of their show. Then, a supposed Greek wrestler named Theodore George came forward and said he came to Denver to challenge the winner of this match. They put on an exciting 15-minute exhibition match. Many claimed that George was actually Clarence Whistler. What a fucking layered, murder mystery, goddamn knives-out layered narrative we have here. So there was a fake Andre Cristal running around the West, losing, making the real Andre Cristal look bad, so Andre Cristal tracked him down to Denver, challenged him, injured him, and then a Greek wrestler pops up and says, Hey, it's... I don't know how to do a Greek accent. I would just do Super Mario. It's me. I'm the Greek wrestler. And then most people are like, I'm pretty sure that was Clarence Whistler. What the fuck? Yes, was it like not my gimmick day in Denver? <laughs> what? No, I, that is brilliant, though. Imagine that double swerve where it's like, this guy is faking to be this guy. So so that guy who's, who's getting impersonated fakes to be another guy, gets in the match. Um, the minute that he revealed himself and people, I mean, there weren't a lot of smart fans back. Could you imagine Meltzer? Be like, oh my God, it's really him. How many times have we seen that angle or a version of that done where that's like, this really fucking happened. This wasn't somebody impersonating somebody else to send a psychological message. This was a guy trying to cash in on somebody else's gimmick. And then that guy making him pay in the old school way. Yeah, because you have to consider that this was not done as showbiz razzle-dazzle. No. This wasn't some sort of switch, double switch. This was a carny scam double cross. A grifter was... grifted a grifter, dude. Yeah, he was fucking pissed. So yeah, this wasn't done for television. This was insane real-life twists and turns of carny versus carny action. Like, imagine sometimes how hard it is to keep your story straight when you call in sick to work. Now imagine having to do this. Yeah, no. and I still wonder, where did Clarence Whistler come into this? He, he just was like, fuck it, everybody's using fake names. I'm... I'm uh, Greek now. It's like he didn't even have anybody he was setting up. He was just like, you know what? Win, it. Win in Greece, I guess. From the December 25th, 1882, Minnesota St. Paul Daily Globe, they cover the December 18th Clarence Whistler versus Joe Acton match at Madison Square Garden, claiming it was for the championship of the world. I'm curious what Muldoon made of that. And a purse of $2,000. Betting odds were in favor of Acton. 100 to 90, and drew 5,000 fans, which is not bad in any era. The match started at 8.15 and ended at 11 p.m. with a draw. 
Acton was the aggressor and Whistler playing defense. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch described it as rather joyless for the audience. The crowd began to shout, Go on! while hisses arose from all sides. Later, the referee yelled at the crowd, Joe can't make him wrestle, after another and fruitless struggle. The referee said there was no use in continuing the match, as Whistler had declared that he would sprawl all night on the platform before he would rise and tackle the little demon. The crowd dispersed with many growls. <laughs> heat, 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 heat. And we've seen this in modern MMA. When somebody puts on the, uh, they get, gets on their bicycle, as uh, they would often say, and spends the entirety of the fight backpedaling, the crowd um, doesn't get to have a very good time. It is not exciting to watch. It is very frustrating to watch. And there is a certain amount of strategy in, you know, being a counterpuncher. Let the guy come to you. you he takes a step forward, you take a step back. But at some point, you gotta take that step forward for the counter shot. Otherwise, you're just running away all night. And uh, because it's old timey, once again, I just see them back doing it in a circle in kind of slightly sped up silent film footage with like uh, some piano music playing in a comical fashion. Yeah, I, and it would make, I can imagine that particular era and that particular audience get particularly pissed off. They want to see some some competition, man. And and there's a you said it you said it perfectly. There's a difference between counterfighting and then in fight or flight running. Which and, is funny because in a way, I almost feel like that was more action than they would see in those Greco-Roman days where it's like, "Hey, I didn't come here to watch a guy run backwards. I came here to watch a 45-minute headlock struggle." Hey man, shout out shout out to the old school style, man. That headlock was over. But it was a, you know, I think it was the idea was they wanted to see a competition and one, you know, Whistler was kind of giving him a chicken shit performance because he's a fucking heel and it was, you know, he pissed him off. But you got to be careful with stuff like that because there's a difference between heat and go away heat. Yeah, but here's something to get excited for. A rematch was in the planning. Yay, excitement. They're like, this time we'll try. <laughs> This time we'll have we'll have a, a second referee who crouches down behind Whistler. So if he runs back, we'll <laughs> trip over him and fall. Yeah, I'm surprised they didn't have that spot in the first uh, silent film. I mean, match. From the Burlington Hawkeye, January 14th, 1883, covering the previous night's Clarence Whistler match versus John Graham at the Louisville Opera House. $500 on the line for two out of three falls. The first round was catch as catch can, won by Whistler. Second was Greco-Roman, which was won by Graham, quote, on a claim of foul against Whistler. And the third was Greco again, and after 17 minutes, Graham threw Whistler so hard that it, quote, broke his shoulder. Graham was awarded the win. Well, that was unexpected. Um, did they, so he, obviously, this guy was a, was a bigger, stronger Greco guy if he's catching Whistler and slamming him, but... I wonder what the uh, result of the foul was, and I wonder if this is all, you know, a hippodrome, if they're working this injury or if this thing's legit. And that's where I kind of, uh, where, where my, my, my spider senses were, were leading me. Because if you notice, Whistler won the only clean fall. Yes. Whistler won the clean fall, and then the second was on a foul, and the third was on a shoulder injury. So that just doesn't seem too correct for me. Plus, you know, as we've discussed many times before, if you're going to win off of skewed betting, and this was true then as it was in the 
Wayne Munn versus Ed Strangler Lewis uh, match decades later is the way to keep somebody strong but still beat the betting spread is to have them go out without losing. Lose without losing. So you lose by a foul. You lose by a count out. You lose by a disqualification. You lose because you're injured off of a dirty move. Um, because then it keeps you looking strong. You clean up on the bets with your fixed matches. Creates interest for a rematch. And also, another thing we've discussed is if you know you get your shoulder wrecked in 1883 exactly dude. your career is probably the fuck over because you know they don't have like an ortho they don't put you in an mri and see how much tendon damage there is they just kind of like put your sh they like hold your shoulder they look at your left shoulder and then hold your right shoulder to the same place and go that looks about right good luck thoughts and prayers yeah I, yeah i think it's 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 very highly likely a setup and a worked angle to beat the spread, keep the baby face strong with an out. And then also, because like you said, man, this is like Oregon Trail death sentence. You get, a, you get a, an injury like that, it stays injured. Back then, there wasn't a lot of uh, athletic level repaired surgery with like a joint or a shoulder or a neck or a knee or something like that or your back if it broke it stayed broke yeah because keep in mind this is still and we even saw this years later this is still the day where it's like oh the big match fell apart because one of them contracted tuberculosis yeah yes yes well yes it's 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 not as rare as people would think but it um what happened when uh with an angle like this, what I'm curious is how did they spin that? Did they just go on to the next town? Or the, did he, like, was that the end of his time in that area? Because then he was permanently injured anytime he went back? Or And that's the curious thing. It's kind of like the typical wrestling lore thing we always talk about. How, you know, Evan Lewis broke Sorokichi's Masuda's leg. But then Matsuda was wrestling like three weeks later. You know, this is a similar situation where I feel like Maybe they were planning on coming back for a rematch. Maybe they were just kind of trying to throw the betting off. Who could possibly say? But it's not like he was, uh, you know, sitting around doing nothing. Because on January 31st, 1883, the Shelbyville Daily Evening Democrat, uh, Shelbyville, you know, just down the highway from, uh, from Springfield, uh, so that paper and other papers report that Whistler signed to wrestle Theobode Bauer in Kansas City for 500 aside which he won, according to a late article in the Boston Post. Because, which he won, according to a later article in the Boston Post. So yeah, he was only sitting on the shelf for, you know, a couple of weeks with a broken shoulder in 1883. I'm going to call bullshit on that. And plus, you can also make the extra layer of bullshit when he's doing a match with the king of the hippodromes, Theobode Bauer. Yeah, exactly. And, like, furthermore... If somebody like Muldoon, who is legitimately considered probably the greatest Greco practitioner of the era, couldn't slam Whistler to the degree of, of any giving him a career-ending shoulder injury, what makes you think that somebody else could? I mean, anything's possible on any given True. night. True. But, you know, the, the Matt Sarah rule, as we'll, we'll call it. Um, but it is a situation where... Unlikely, unlikely, unlikely. All signs point towards Hippodrome. So we'll just kind of put that in that uh, that file and move on with our days. 
On March 15, 1883, the Topeka State Journal interviewed Whistler regarding his match against a, quote, unknown Englishman. Noted for a fun old-time insult when discussing a possible match against Muldoon, quote, he wanted to show the Fifth Avenue swell that he was an overrated duffer whose forte lay in jerking beer for his audience. Ooh, that's up there, man. He called him, he called him a duffer? An overrated duffer whose forte lay in jerking beer for his audience. Man, that's how, what a nice way to say, you know, it's like, he's just a, he's, he's washed up. He's no good. He's not everything he says he is. The only thing he's good for is drawing out bar sales. Like, fuck you. That's like some 1883, I buy a gun and a train ticket and I come find you kind of insults. Yeah, you're going to get slapped with a glove and challenged to a duel with that shit. Oh, that's not duel material. That's that's shooting somebody in the back in a fit of rage. And then you tell the judge what he said. And the jury gasps. And the judge slams down his gavel and says, case dismissed. And instead, we have a match to build. Yes, this is how we do it. Yes, capital, darling. The Winona Daily Republic, May 2nd, 1883. A draw versus Tom Cannon in Kansas City. Sure, a lot of draws in these days, am I right? And in the same sport page, I found out that the horses were slightly ahead in the Boston horse versus bicycle races. Just in case anyone was wondering. Is that like a veiled, insulting metaphor, or was that like a literal thing that happened back then? Oh, no. They had a long-distance marathon type of race, horses versus bicycles. Because this is, like I said, this is a bicycle is a fairly new piece of technology. So, yeah, they're like, break out the velocipede. Let's see if it can outrace old silver here. Lay down the tracks. Oh, we don't have tracks to lay down. Dig us a track. So, yeah, the sports pages in this era, even if I'm not just looking at the wrestling pages, are completely batshit insane. Yeah, I mean, man, what a cool idea. We should have, like, inter-species versus technology races more often, man. It's kind of like when we were talking about, in the early Charles Parson Davies episodes, where people were paying money to watch foot races, tug-of-wars. I'm sure you could have gotten people to buy tickets and do bets on rock, paper, scissors because you didn't have the internet. You didn't have television. There was like three books if you even knew how to read. So yeah, you would anything that you could watch, get mad about, drink while watching, and gamble away your paycheck so your wife leaves you, well, guess what? We've got something for you. Man, and that's why the, the this is the greatest sport of all time, man, because we service the needs of the people. From the Cincinnati Commercial Gazette, June 9th, 1883, wrestling tournament at St. Louis. A wrestling tournament for, quote, the championship of the world. With a first prize of $500 and runner-up gets $150. Hey, you know what? That's still a lot of money in those days. And in the first round, Whistler beats Edwin Beebe. The matches were to go on for two more days. The Burlington Hawkeye reported that Whistler beat Tom Cannon on day two, and the Monmouth Evening Gazette on June 13th detailed Whistler winning the tournament by throwing Andre Cristal so hard that it broke his shoulder blade. <laughs> Typical, am I right? The championship didn't really catch on or was acknowledged, but the tournament was a financial bust. So yeah, so they put together this this wrestling tournament, bringing all the stars in to 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 shine and have a multi multi day tournament. 
and it's clearly just a bunch of workers working their asses off. Because, I mean, Kristall was essentially Whistler's trainer. It was his mentor. They did, you know, carnival shows together forever. I love that, once again, somebody gets dumped so hard it breaks their shoulder blade. Like, that wouldn't be a career-ending injury in those days. So, yeah, this guy brought together all the top stars, multi-day tournament, and financially ate shit. That's pro wrestling, everybody. Yeah, I loved how you were, like, building up. You're like, and while the, while the championship was not heavily acknowledged after that, it was also financially a bust. I was like, oh, at least they're going to, like, get over and get everything paid. Nope. This is why we can't have nice things in pro wrestling, people. I like to think that promoter just spent the rest of his career just lashing out at the people of St. Louis for not supporting his wrestling tournament as any good promoter would. Yeah, it's clearly the people's fault, and I'm also going to play blame stunt double Cristal. <laughs> exactly. Eureka Daily Sentinel, November 2nd, 1883. Muldoon crushes Whistler. At the Mechanics Pavilion, with an attendance of 4,000 people and a prize of $2,000, the entire box office, and the championship of the world, Muldoon won the first fall in 48 minutes, Whistler the second in 42 minutes, the third was declared a draw because Whistler's shoulder was broken during the second fall. How does this keep happening? What a... Somebody, somebody get this man a new shoulder. Dude, I haven't seen this string of consecutive injuries to the same position since the 1997 L.A. Rams. Like, how, how many consecutive shoulder injuries are we going to have? He's only got two shoulders, man. It makes me think of, like, how so often you find that one thing which is a bit of an out to draw heat. And because, you know, you're not on TV. You know, nobody's got their phone out, uh, you know, recording it to put on uh, Twitter. You just have what happened to that audience, and you keep a man intact by having him be injured. So it's the same injury going town to town to town to town, much like Ed Lewis was you know, selling his back as an injury when he was thrown over the ropes, or how Joe Stetcher kept getting arrested by the police for uh, pretend for hospitalizing his opponents. You know, when it's a regional game you're able to pull the same dipshit trick out of your pocket in every single town, and it's still going to have the desired result. Yes, but to counterpoint, we've just read this in three different news articles. So, I mean, even though it doesn't have Twitter, the angle still is getting out there that they're just using the same. It's like turning into the Canadian destroyer of its day. It's just getting overdone to shit. <laughs> so, yeah, so they did keep it to be a draw one and one with a injury to stop things at the end. It kept the championship on Muldoon. It kept Whistler looking strong-ish. But according to many, this was the final straw between Muldoon and Whistler, with Muldoon fed up with Whistler's drinking and their onstage and backstage fist fights. Because Muldoon did see a lot of potential, and he saw a lot of money and made a lot of money with Whistler. But at a certain point, when somebody is just a mean-spirited, drunken asshole who's trying to go into business for themselves at every turn is hard to work with and will slug you in the mouth if you try to correct him. Eventually, that becomes a bit of a business problem. Yeah, but, especially when the other guy is Muldoon, Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, drink your milk and cookies and has a problem. You know the number of training partners that he's had a problem with their drinking. You know, I bet he's not very fun to have out at the old speakeasy. What I would have loved is 
because you know it's like we talked about in the Davies uh, series about Muldoon and Sullivan having to tour, and you 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 think about these things where this was really a day where you would have that like the teetotaler type. And then a man who thinks whiskey goes over your cornflakes. There was really no in-between in those days. Oh, totally. So you would have a man who would be like 3 a.m. drunk by noon and a man who's like juggling bowling pins on a unicycle to build core strength because that's how they worked out back then, I assume. You would just have the worst resentments, the worst clashes. And as soon as business started ticking downwards... It would just be apocalyptic. Yeah, you could see it in so many levels of analysis how that is just a recipe for disaster. Because on the one hand, if you're a guy like Sullivan or you're a guy like Whistler where you are, you know, by all all accounts, considered a world champion or have won a world championship or, you know, at that level, who the fuck are you to tell me I can't have my whiskey with my cornflakes, motherfucker? Like, like it, it, it's the same shit with these CrossFit fucks. and if you're concerned about whistler's shoulder i mean we all are we all were everyone was back in those days according to the january 30th quincy daily journal whistler's shoulder is improving but is still stiff he is still in san francisco and that was january 30th 1884 so you know two months later he's in san francisco just just healing up from this broken shoulder just laying low so, you know, that's one of those things where, man, because they were doing kind of some stationary business in California. So I don't think he was really injured, but I do feel like he had to sell it for, uh, for a couple of months to, uh, to build up a, another match. At least he acknowledged it, you know? It's like, yeah, and that's a good way to uh, put yourself on vacation in Cali. Yeah, that's a, and Cornette would really approve of how hard he was selling this, this injury. Oh, yeah. He's yeah. like, God damn, he got him neck brace on national TV, smoke man. So that brings us to the third match against William Muldoon, the New York Tribune on March 23rd, 1884, with, quote, The coming Greco-Roman match between Muldoon and Whistler on Monday night is the chief topic in sporting circles. It will be a match for blood, as the men are bitter enemies, both having wooed the same woman. Muldoon proved successful in love, as he has thus far been in wrestling. If he overcomes Whistler this time, Muldoon may be fairly called the champion wrestler of the country. So much to unpack. Wait, 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 where did they start doing the Miss Elizabeth angle from WrestleMania 8? Who booked this shit? Where did the woman come from? Yeah, I'm very confused by this because I found almost nothing before or after or anything that didn't reference this. So suddenly, now, there's now a, in the news that, oh, they were both after the same woman. And Muldoon is the one that swept her off her feet. And Whistler is very bitter. And he wants in-ring revenge. I mean, it's storytelling, and it's fantastic, and what a weird romantic subplot for non-televised wrestling in the 1880s. Yeah, I wonder who, where the inception of this came from. Who did they overhear or misinterpret or took and ran with this, that, that, that this became printed? I can't even, like, there's nothing to do with nothing up until this point. And I'm sure that Whistler's wife loved hear, reading that in the papers. So it's, you know, you almost have the uh, real sunny day kind of, uh, kind of <laughs> oh, thing going shit. on. Yeah, yeah, totally. This is, this is a recipe for the disaster, man. I want to know who leaked this to the press. Well, it was a recipe for disaster because according to the March 25th, 1884, Daily Alta, California, a draw. 
5,000 people disappointed and disgusted. Muldoon gets very tired. Whistler fresh and willing to continue the contest. Neither man gains a fall. What the contestants say. The match was apparently amazing for the first hour, which is a crazy thing to think of in today's uh, structure where it's like, it's like, oh man, for the first hour, that was fucking fantastic. Like, why was the whole thing even a fucking hour? Well, that's showbiz, baby. The match had nonstop attacks and reversals, leaving Whistler with a bloody nose. After a 15-minute rest, they went at it again, looking tired and neither able to get an advantage. Another hour went by, and quote, The crowd had thinned out considerably by this time, 11.45 p.m., and those remaining showed signs of fatigue, but determined to wait for a fall if it took all summer. So, in a day of slow-paced Greco-Roman-style wrestling, they still managed to put on such a shitty match that people were walking or sticking around resentfully while they're... It's like they're watching, like, the fifth overtime of a hockey playoff game that they have no invested interest in either team. Yeah, totally. I mean, it, and it also speaks to just several things. One, the fact that you could go 60 minutes and tear the house down and still have a shitty match because these audiences were conditioned to just go until it was done. It didn't matter if it took two hours, five hours, six hours. That's what these people paid their money to see. And goddamn, what are they going to go home and watch the grass grow and the, and the paint dry? So it's like, they're they're going to stick it out and get their money's worth, even if they're doing it out of spite. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, they're there. They're here to watch it. Nope. They're, they're having such a bad time. It's like, well, it's either this or go home and see if any of my nine children passed away from diphtheria while I was gone, as was the custom of the time. So, yeah, like people are walking out. People are booing. Nobody's having fun to a match that was built up to the point where it should have been a layup. So this really shows the disjointed relationship between the two men at this point, because two good workers who have built something up that hot should be able to deliver it with minimal effort. And they were just so not on the same page that it just shit the bed. Yeah, it makes you wonder what the plan was for that. Was that a legit shoot? I mean, what what could they possibly have been trying to uh, achieve by going for two plus hours without the first fall? Unless that was a legit shoot. Unless they're just trying to shot like get a shot clock violation and stall out the crowd to get another booking and well, continue it. I don't know. Well, as the night went on, the crowd turned on Muldoon, booing the champ. Quote, Whistler, with a look of weary disgust on his face, walked to the edge of the stage and appealed to the spectators, said... What's the use of trying to wrestle this way? He evidently meant what he said and won the sympathy of the crowd in a second. So I'm very curious when you have time in the middle of a match to walk to the edge of the platform and sympathize with the booing crowd. So the, I assume this was during the rest period. But yeah, it's like, what a Deadpool-style fourth wall break where you have like the crowds booing, 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 and the... It's kind of like, again, it's like the Muldoon-Evan Lewis uh, you know, match where you walk to the stage and be like, hey, everybody, I know, right? Yeah, serious. <laughs> I'm with you. I feel you. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty remarkable. And he, he, he got the audience behind him, but it's also because Muldoon's style is boring and the audience probably understands that. That was the argument at the time of like Greco versus the new catches catch can. So it's easy to paint him as the reason that the, the, the match isn't exciting. 
Well, Muldoon tried to get his uh, side of the story told. He walked to the front of the stage and essayed to speak, but hisses, groans, and cries of contempt drowned his voice. Then he spoke to the referee, Jordan, and the referee gave him a hearing. He said, quote, Mr. Muldoon says he is tired and cannot go on. No, I did not, said Muldoon, angrily interrupting. I'll speak for myself. He tried so, but all that could be heard above the din was, quote, Whistler sent to my room and offered to call it a draw. So you have a ref, you know, so, Whist so Whistler says, I, I don't know what this guy's problem is. Muldoon tries to get his side of the story told, gets booed, talks to the referee. The referee says, hey, he's tired and can't wrestle anymore. Muldoon says, like, fuck, I can't. I didn't say that. Uh, Whistler's the one who sent me a note saying that we should call it a draw. Again, so many fucking layers of weirdness in a very short amount of time. How is an audience supposed to appreciate, comprehend, or process this when you essentially have two guys that clearly don't want to work with each other but aren't going to shoot on each other, like trying to like make these like weird political back channel wins? It's almost like a pipe bomb. Right? Like a proto-pipe bomb where they're literally almost not fully exposing the business, but like you said, the fourth wall and kind of manipulating the the sort of uh, the backing of the crowd through these through means other than just getting it done in the ring. Right? They're trying to sway favor politically and verbally and all these other ways without actually beating the guy. Or without taking a fall, and it's like proto-pro-wrestling politics. It's it's like they're making the match after one hour, the pre-match spot of the heel in the face getting up on the ring post to try to get the crowd to cheer for them and get the cheers versus the boos, but somehow trying to make that the definitive decision in the match after an hour of wrestling. Yeah, and I've, I've you know... For being Mr. Milk and Cookies, I'm surprised Muldoon was so tired that he couldn't keep going after two hours. Well, after claiming that Whistler sent him an offer to call it a draw, the crowd wasn't buying it. So Muldoon complained and left the stage, claiming he'll talk to the press, to whom he complained about being disrespected, booed, and how he was tired and couldn't throw Whistler, stating how much younger Whistler was than himself. The referee declared the match a draw, all bets were off, and quote, the crowd howled, Hippodrome, fraud, and other remarks of contempt. That's awesome. Talk about a go-home chant. <laughs> That's great. But, you know, I mean, really, he's like, what did he expect? He's trying to snitch. He's like, oh, no, it's not my fault. He really did this. Fuck you, you cop. <laughs> the referee told the crowd that he couldn't force them to wrestle if they didn't want to. Outside, the crowd backed Whistler and shouted insults at Muldoon. According to the author of the article, quote, Mr. Muldoon has given the sport of Greco-Roman wrestling nearly as bad as it got when Mr. Miller made himself so unpopular here. It is easier to feel sorry for the man than it is to defend him. He is a shattered idol, and that's about all there is to say about him. Whistler is the hero of the hour, and it is due to him to say that he both acted and talked in a fine, manly fashion. Who boy, what a, again, some, some old-timey praise and some old-timey insults. A shattered idol. Imagine being referred to as a shattered idol. Though that does sound like some sort of shitty 
indie name you would have found with somebody wearing Hot Topic gear like in 2010. <laughs> yeah, totally. He's like, here comes the Shattered Idol, and you just play some Slipknot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it just finishes the Five Finger Death Punch. But, um, no, guaranteed, you know that got Muldoon pissed. Oh, yeah, because, I mean, he got called a... Sh- he got told that there was, there, it was easier to feel sorry for him. Oh, yeah. Pitiful, and then calling Whistler the hero and saying that he acted and talked in a fine, manly fashion. This is devastating coverage. Heck, I can't imagine a more embarrassing and damaging article that could appear in a newspaper. Except this one. On March 27th, 1884, San Francisco Examiner, Whistler's expose of the wrestling fiasco on Tuesday night, how the match was arranged. He says that Muldoon never engaged in a square contest in his life. Ooh, <laughs> that is a cold one, especially talking about the guy who is Mr. Up and Up and Up and on the level, you know, that's that's fighting words. Whistler told the paper that Muldoon was only willing to take the match if Whistler would put him over. Whistler agreed, but then Clarence decided, quote, that, feeling confident of his superior muscle, he determined to throw Muldoon, notwithstanding the private arrangement between the two. So yeah, so Whistler fully comes out and says, yeah, yeah, we we were going to work a match, but I figured I could win a shoot. So I shot on him, and that's why he got all butthurt and stormed off. What a thing to tell the papers. Well, no wonder he's the baby face. That's how you turn. This motherfucker wanted a hippodrome, and I was trying to keep it on the square for the people. In addition to that, Whistler stated that he wanted a representative to look after his interests in the box office, but that he wasn't allowed. When he decided to throw Muldoon, he knew that Muldoon would seize the money and not share. So he sent his corner man to intercede, but he was turned away each time. Whistler, quote, expressed great indignation at what he had termed Muldoon's impudence and attempting to soft-soap himself again in favor with the public, whose confidence he had so frequently betrayed. I'm willing to bet $100 to 10 cents, he explained, that Muldoon does not know what it is to make a square match. He has never wrestled one in his life, and I can prove it. Again, this is an interview he's giving to the paper in 1884. He is just saying he was going to screw me out of my money like he does everybody else. And he's such a fucking phony. He's never probably ever wrestled a real match. Fuck that guy. Wow. Yeah, you don't fuck with a man named Clarence. Like I said, you have really done pissed him off. But I love the brazen. Yeah, well, you know, I just kind of said, fuck it. We were going we to work. And I just decided, you know... Old lion's ready to go. He's looking a little long in the tooth. It's time to shoot on this cat. He continued to run down Muldoon for owing him at least $2,000 and was willing to swear in court that Muldoon was a fake. So that dollar amount makes this whole thing seem a little, um, a little more genuine from Whistler's complaints perspective. Because, hey, you know what? You know how much $2,000 was worth in 1884? More than $2,000 today. I don't know. I didn't look it up. I don't know how to do that kind of math. But that's a shitload of money. And if somebody was just pecking at you for your life choices, 
was just making you feel like telling you you're an asshole left and right, making you do the job left and right, making you lie low with an injury, and then has been stiffing you on your fucking money. I can call that the final straw very easily. Oh, yeah. And I think a lot of people resonate. Is this is this the first time somebody used what would be considered like heelish verbiage? but got over as the baby face in the press where they basically just shit talked their way into the favor of the fans. I, you know, you're right. It may very well be because a lot of the guys who were, you know, accidentally exposing the business were just being brazen about it. This is, I think the first time a guy came forward and was like, you know what? I'm an honest man in a dirty business. Check out this motherfucker. Yeah. And I mean, he's the way he did it and the way that Muldoon is perceived publicly in the way that he is. He's the perfect guy to do that to because he's that he's that self-righteous, holier-than-now character. And then as soon as that guy is doing dirty shit, fuck that guy. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and that, like I said, it was like that perfect in-the-press, real-life, heel-babyface uh, switch because, again, Muldoon was the the you know white meat baby face whistler was you know the playing heel but then as soon as you find out that Muldoon is not only a real life heel that he's like not only is he faking it not only is he a not only is he a faker a hippodromist you find out that he's also holding out on money and when somebody tries to shoot on him he just walks away quits and complains so he's and, and within one article he's exposed as a fake a cheat a coward and a crybaby. Fucking Mortal Kombat, flawless victory, finish him. Yeah, total fatality. And it's like, you could take the same sort of pieces of that and apply it to some of the greatest money-drawing angles of all time because a lot of that could fit to, like, Vincent Stone Cold, right? You have this tyrannical, hypocritical boss that's fucking with the guy who's just trying to make a living and you're fucking with the man's money and he's out here trying to just work and you're fucking with the man's lifestyle and he's just trying to have a beer and, you know the people that resonates with people but don't worry Muldoon had the perfect comeback Muldoon had the perfect PR strategy to get back on track Brett screwed Brett and by perfect I mean the worst dumbest fucking thing you could possibly say on April 6th, 1884, the Daily Alta, Muldoon talks. He gives the inside history of all his matches, misleading the public. He claims that the contests were square, but the stakes otherwise. The article discusses the wrestling boom of the previous five years, with stars like Bauer, Whistler, Beebe, and most of all Muldoon turning wrestling into a profitable sport that the public couldn't get enough of. So, once again, his, his plan is to pivot the boom of wrestling to be built on his back. Very Hogan-esque. So he's already totally. trying to be like, oh yeah, you know, I'm like wrestling really has become a big sport and I'm not saying I'm responsible for it, but I'm uh, saying I'm responsible for it. But back to the article. The fatal fiasco of the last Muldoon Whistler match when the spectators suddenly realized that they had been duped and expressed their indignation in no gentle tones. The... Forms of indignation were hurled on Muldoon's head, while Whistler was considered a victim of the former's crookedness and sympathized with accordingly. Muldoon didn't want to talk to the press, but finally relented. He explained how a hippodrome was a fake contest where both men agreed on the outcome, which he would never, ever do. 
he told a story of his match with a wrestler where the promoter told him he should lose the first fall and take the second two. He refused, and his opponent, a wrestler named Rigel, said that he'd pull off the show. Muldoon reminded him of the forfeit of $100 the men had already staked. The match happened. Muldoon threw him in the first. Between falls, the manager told him Rigel had to have the second fall or he wouldn't go on. Muldoon told him he'd cover the expenses of Rigel since the loser walked away essentially empty-handed. Muldoon claimed he toyed with Rigel to drag it out before the fall. He claimed Rigel was eager for a second match, but only if Muldoon wouldn't be so rough in the ring, which he agreed to. So he's coming out and trying his defense against calls of being a faker is to say, oh, no, no, wrestling is fake as fuck. I was told to, like, give him a fall to make it look competitive, but I am too honest of a grappler. I would never do that. And, you know, when the guy wouldn't come on, I told him I would pay him to come out so he wouldn't go home empty-handed. And then I, like, carried him for a while and then, you know, won fair and square. And I don't know where in his dumb fucking brain he thought this was going to make him look like a good guy to the sporting press, but apparently that's what he was going for. Yeah, because, I mean, you could even take it like... I'm so much better than everyone else. It's not a it's not a hippodrome. It's me like playing down to the level of my competition to give and toying with my food to give the paying audience a good time or to try to appease this dirty business. But I'm just I no matter what I'm on the square. I can make it at work. I can make it work even in a shoot because I'm that good. It's like fuck you, dude. And in addition to making himself look like the most honest man in sports, he decided to build himself up through the time-honored tradition of kicking dirt on someone else. Muldoon claimed that Edwin Beebe signed a contract to wrestle Rigel with, quote, will lose the first fall in the contract. Quote, I advised him not to do it and told him that I would not work with him if he did, as it would ruin his reputation and jeopardize mine as well. Beebe replied, do you take me for a fool? I intend to throw him every time. He then wanted to borrow $500 for me to bet with, stating that he intended to throw Hogan, the promoter, and all his friends. I refuse to have anything to do with that. What an asshole. So he's like saying, not only is BB signing a contract to throw the first fall, I told him not to because I'm so, so full of the, the righteousness and the goodness and the truthfulness of professional wrestling. And I told him I wouldn't even work with him in the future. And BB's such a scumbag that he's like, I'm going to throw this motherfucker anyway. Can I borrow $500 to bet on me? And then I'm going to throw the promoter and all his bum friends. Like, I want to hang out with Edwin BB instead of this motherfucker after that. Yeah, totally, man. I mean, what... For what part of the game is snitching supposed to be cool? Every time people prove that this guy's a jackass or he's not as righteous as he claims to be, his response is to just snitch on people and, and just double down on his self-righteousness. Boo! Yeah, I, and once again, if you gave me the opportunity, who am I supposed to root for? William Muldoon, who's snitching and trying to be a Puritan and saying, if you do this, I won't work with you because you make me look bad by comparison. Or BB, who said, yeah, I'm going to sign that and forfeit my, uh, my, my purse, but can I borrow 500 bucks to bet on myself so I can make a shitload of money and then I'm going to beat up the promoter? 
Yeah, that guy sounds like a badass. I want to party with Edwin Beebe. I don't give a fuck about Muldoon. I want to hang out with this guy. This is the guy I want to cheer for. Yeah, exactly. The article was an endless claim of his own honesty to his own detriment. How everyone else was shady. And he constantly had to give money back or take pay cuts to get legit matches. He claimed he was forced to lay off of Whistler's bad shoulder to get the match made. That the referee misunderstood what he had said. Not that he was tired, but the audience must be tired and disgusted. For good measure, he went out of his way to call Whistler a drunk. Which, you know, was probably the first honest thing he said in that, uh, in that rant. So yeah, he's pretty much just went out of his way to say that, oh yeah, in order to get honest contests, I had to take less money or cover my own thing or cover this guy's thing so he would get paid because this guy could only win in a hippodrome. And on top of that, Whistler's a drunk. Yeah, this is, yeah, just piling on. And not only that, he's like, I was doing what's in the best interest of the audience. I was thinking about the people. They're tired, not me. Yeah, it just, if you you don't look clean by kicking the dirt on everyone else. Yeah, it's just, it's just, you look like an asshole. He comes off like that really, really pretentious, like, Oh, teacher's pet kid. Oh, yeah. And then the yeah. one time he gets in trouble, he just tries, well, Billy did this. Da, 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 da. Teacher, teacher, Don Davenport's eating a meatball sub in class. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, fuck, fuck this guy. Well, now we go down a weird uh, side quest. On May 24th, 1884, Clarence's brother, Private William Whistler, starved to death at Camp Clay in the Arctic Archipelago. The Greeley expedition was an absolute disaster. They went up there to explore and try to like figure out, you know, weather, science. I, I, it was a little bit above my head, but I'm also very stupid. But the Greeley expedition was a disaster, with only seven of the 25 men surviving. And there were stories of the starving men turning to cannibalism to stay alive. The August 20th, 1884 New York Times published, Proof from the Grave! The body of Private Whistler taken from the ground. Examination of the remains showing that it suffered the same mutilations as the others. So they did an, a post-mortem autopsy to find that uh, there were some knife and fork marks on the bones of this poor bastard. So he had been nibbled on as a frozen dinner. They ate the motherfucker? Yep, so Whistler's brother turned to uh, Arctic dinner uh, while all the starving men were looking around and uh, trying to figure out uh, what, what was for dinner, and it was him. Well, you know, that sucks. I mean, there's a lot to unpack with that, but I mean, I guess in a situation like that, it's like, I'm sure if he had survived, he would have been eating the other guys too, right? Oh, 100%. So. Hell, I'm pondering it right now, and it hasn't even snowed yet, so watch out, buddy. The article discussed that when the body was returned to Delphi and buried, quote, the relatives of young Whistler are simple country folk and have little access to the daily newspapers. The published reports of man-eating by the explorers did not, therefore, reach them until last Tuesday. The grandfather of William and Clarence had the body exhumed to see if William had suffered the fate of being dinner for his fellow desperate explorers. The body was practically picked clean of meat, except for the head and a few other less delicious parts. This, <laughs> their grandmother had some philosophical perspective on this. Quote, poor boy, said the old lady. He was a good lad, but it is better that he has been eaten by his comrades than he should have eaten of them. 
So this lady has the fine Christian. It is he was a good boy, and it's better that he died and was eaten by his uh, by his compatriots than he would have had to taste man flesh like a fucking orc. Yeah, no, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with the opposite on that. I'm gonna disagree, Granny. You know, that's a uh, you know. I just I just expect Muldoon to now be like, I'll eat you alive <laughs> next time he has a promo whistler just to be a dick. <laughs> From the Philadelphia Times, September 4th, 1884, defeats Pedro Dalmas, the French champion, because if you have a French name, you're the French champion, for $500 stakes and a $1,000 purse. First fall in 10 minutes, and second fall in 27 minutes. Clearly, they weren't being paid by the hour this time around. Yes, and it's also, it shows the direct uh, appreciation for the skill level of France. I This is one of those ones where... I do almost feel like this was probably a shoot because they were, it was probably one of those like, he's massively outmatched. We're not going to worry about this. You boys go have it. You go, you boys go have fun. Yeah. Cause that's the thing. If, if it, it's not, that's the, that is the gray area though. When somebody is so much better than their opponent that they can literally toy with them. I mean, what is the difference between a work and a shoot at that point? Yeah. It's, it is one of those things, you know, we've talked about all the ways you stack a match. You outright work it. Two men cooperating. You have one man and one referee working it. You can have one man throwing the fight without the referee knowing what's uh, what's going on on the inside. You can make it things so one-sided through the booking that it might as well be a fix. And I feel like that's probably the case here. Yeah. Because I don't think a promoter is going to be too happy if uh, you know the main event in 1884 is not even an hour long. Yeah, unless, but the people got their money's worth if it was a legitimate competition and it was vicious, you know, that's the thing. You don't see the people complaining even though it, it was short and sweet, but it was probably very brutal. And I loved this on January 30th, 1885 at the Wigwam Theater. Once again, I love the Wigwam Theater because I just like saying Wigwam Theater in San Francisco. He tried his hands at boxing and was knocked out in 33 seconds by local tough Jack Brady. Well, there's something about boxing, and this is as true today as it was in 1885. For some reason, the ring, the boxing, the pugilistic art of of fist and cuffmanship, for some reason, always draws people from other combat sports to it, mostly for the money. You know, boxing has traditionally been a higher paying combat sport than any other. That's why you saw. You know, guys like Gotch try their hand at boxing, get floored. Whistler tries his hand at boxing, gets floored. Wayne Munn tries his hand at boxing, get floored. And even in today's climate, you see MMA guys trying their hands at boxing, no matter how bad a boxer they are, because the money is 10 times what they're earning currently. And I think there's also something to be said for the sexiness of the sweet science. It's just... If you are a gladiator, if you are a warrior, whether you're a wrestler or a jiu-jitsu guy or an MMA guy, whatever it is, pro wrestler, there is something beautiful about boxing that is truly special just to boxing with the rhythm and the timing when you see a perfectly executed counterpunch or whatever that is. And I, I fall victim to it too, where it's like I visualize myself boxing. You know what I mean? It's it's a it's so beautiful. I and, could and see you could fall into that trap. Oh yeah, and it's very it's a very romantic sport. 
there's like a mythology to it. Totally. There is part of the American dream of like the the immigrant coming to America and making his way with his just with just his two fists. You know, this is still the the bare knuckle days. This is still a few years shy of like the Sullivan Kill Rain showdown. So this is still the day of London prize rings of going toe to toe until a man is knocked down and a fight only ends when a man can't get to his feet with a bottle of whiskey in the corner. It's like it's peak manliness across the board and the pay was better than what wrestlers were making. There it was more respectable. It was more respected. So yeah, I could see the draw towards it. I mean, I tried my hand at boxing at a point when I, you know, I didn't need to. I was competing in MMA. I was competing in Muay Thai, but I was like, man, just I, I must have watched like some Rocky movies or something. I don't know. It's, I know why I did it. Because I read Norman Mailer's The Fight, which was about the rumble in the jungle. Oh. And that's when I bought my first pair of boxing boots because I had to at least do this once. So, yeah, the mythology draws you in. It's just part of the American experience. Yeah, I mean, I don't know anybody that's, you know, any any guy that's over the age of 20 that hasn't like watched the Rocky training montage and just started, like, doing push-ups or drinking an egg protein shake. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's just part of the culture. Like you said, the American mythos of, like, rising up and fighting and making it by our own hands. I don't know why I just thought I had this image. Imagine being, like, the boxer with, like, the, the egg protein drinks, but he lives and works on an ostrich farm. Oh, some, <laughs> big, some big eggs. Just, oh my God. It's like, he keeps losing weight. Well, he's sucking down an ostrich egg a day and just pukes his guts out. Why doesn't he stop? He's an idiot, or otherwise he wouldn't be boxing in the first place. Yeah, or working at an ostrich farm. Those things are vicious. Having tried his hands at boxing, it's back to the wrestling world for Clarence Whistler. From the Washington Critic, June 4th, 1885, covering the previous night's contest between Whistler and Duncan C. Ross, Duncan C. Ross, as we might remember from the, uh, um, we might remember from the Parson Davies series, as being part of that horrific bar brawl with a armed stenographer and a kick to death Confederate officer. Listen to our Charles Parson Davies series for details on that. It is a hoot, but the match was won by Ross. Whistler won Greco-Roman and catches catch can. Ross won the collar and elbow and side hold. And the final of the five rounds was a coin toss decided for collar and elbow and was won by Ross. So this is one where I'm very curious as to the shoot versus works nature of this. First of all, how wild were these matches when they would do three out of five and each one was a different style of wrestling? Oh, yeah. I mean, that, I mean, that actually does, that's intriguing and it would be, keep it very exciting and interesting, but... Did Duncan Ross at this point have the stroke to have Whistler put him over in a worked match? Was this just Whistler on the decline and losing a shoot? I think the argument could be made either way. Yeah, I, my my instinct on this is that this might have been a little bit more of a shoot because especially with... It, it lines up that way based on how the falls were done. It does lend itself to a work based on having the different stipulations for each fall because then you can, you know, you don't lose at the falls that are your strengths and you learn that that's not the typical stuff that could be your out. But the fact is it's a coin toss for the final fall. That, I mean, you could cheat on that, but 
It makes me think that he that this might have been a competition. Yeah, because I mean, it did go to the to the final fall, but how many game sevens are there in playoff series? So again, it could be either way. My heart says most likely a shoot on this one, just because he lost against a guy who didn't have the pull to uh, to make it happen. That's the thing. So there's a lot of X factors. It also could be he was having trouble getting good bookings after exposing the business to such a level, and maybe he was having to put people over he could beat in a shoot. A lot of X factors, a lot of possibilities. Who can say? It's also possible he just, you know, did that to cash out on the bookies and bet on that particular outcome that night. Yeah, it's. I always love in this time when you look at the sport of wrestling, and there's nine outcomes, and only one is honest. Yeah, right, exactly. In June of 1885, he set sail for Australia, where he beat Jay Thomas for the championship of Catches Catch Can Wrestling, because, of course, a championship, and then beat Donald Dinney in two matches mixed styles. On September 24th, he beat William Miller. William Miller, you might remember from his series with Theobald Bauer, which were such obvious hippodromes, that the media started telling people, look at these assholes, please stop betting on wrestling, you morons. But he beat him. He beat William Miller for the Greco-Roman Championship of the World. Again, of course, there's a championship on the line. The Kansas City Times described it as, quote, the grandest and the most exciting and stubbornly contested wrestling match ever witnessed in this part of the world. The description of the match clearly drew from more of a catch-work style because it sounded genuinely exciting, though my personal favorite was calling a body lock the French hug. Whoa. Is that like... What was the implication there? Like, has the French kiss already been invented and that was like the hot thing, so they were just like adding on to it or what? I assume, well, it's Greco-Roman, so of course it's a French-style wrestling, so of course they're going to call a body lock. French something or another, mocking or otherwise. But again, I love that he goes to Australia and he's already won two world championships. Yeah, it's because Lord knows all the championships are held down in Australia. <laughs> and according to the St. Paul Daily Globe on January 4th, 1886, in a match he won $1,000. He won the first fall in one hour, 10 minutes, and the second in eight minutes. Tired and working, a shoot, or just... In a hurry to get to the pub. I'm going to go with the last one, because he was trying to get to the bar before it closed. He already did the business. On October 5th, 1885, Atchison Daily Glow mentions Whistler as, quote, another alleged champion when complaining of, quote, champion wrestlers who never threw anybody and the champion fighters that never whipped anybody are becoming entirely too common. As I keep cracking wise about, it seems like every match in every new town is for a championship that has never been explained, proven, won, or was ever defended again. It's like at every turn, it's a French champion. Oh, he's the champion of England. He's the champion of Ireland. He's the champion of Idaho. He's the champion of the moon. Prove me wrong, people. Yeah, you'd think he'd have like this tremendous collection of titles every time he goes to the ring now. from It's like he's collecting them like Infinity Stones, but instead he just doesn't reference them again. Yeah, it's, like, it's, it's championships like... Uh, like the, like the masks of one's enemies for like an old Lucha Libre legend who shows you his trophy room and it's nothing but the bloody masks that he claimed in the ring. Except there's nothing to show because nothing is real. There are no belts. It's all bullshit. 
Yes, he's like, here's where the newspaper said it was for this title, and here's where the newspaper said it was for this title, and that's the documentation he has. Now it gets a little sad. Indianapolis Journal, December 3rd, 1885, death of Clarence Whistler, reports the wrestler's death in Melbourne, Australia. No particulars are given. Boston Post, December 14th, 1885, further information of his death, Anytime I've alluded to a Boston Post article about his life, this is the one I read. They had little information about his death, but recounted his career as best they could. So we really get some information in the St. Paul Daily Globe, March 24th, 1889. So yeah, it was literally years before a lot of information about this wrestler dying in Australia finally got back to the United States. To Clarence Whistler, how the Australians buried the great wrestler. Australians have a warm spot in their hearts for America and Americans, says the Cincinnati Inquirer. Anybody from the land of stars and stripes is always accorded a hearty welcome by the people of that far-off country. Clarence Whistler, the greatest Greco-Roman wrestler that ever pulled a shirt over his head, died in the gutter at Melbourne, Australia, the results of his own dissipation. The tribute paid his memory by the people of the Antipodes cannot but help awaken a responsive chord in the hearts of Americans. Although he died alone in a strange country, without enough money to buy a shroud, his remains were not carted out to the potter's field. No, indeed. The people of Melbourne went down to their pockets. A great benefit was given. First of all, what a fucking burial about a burial. So he died in Australia, and then when we finally get some information about it, it's, yeah, he was, first of all, the greatest Greco-Roman man to ever pull a shirt over his head. Kind of a cool description. I'm sure Muldoon loved reading that, uh, compared, that, that, uh, that statement about him. But I love, it's like, he died penniless, the bastard. What an idiot. Yeah, in Australia, in the gutter, like, he had just drunk himself into just complete annihilation, and then... The people, like, did he try to keep drinking with the Aussies or like... I, well, that is a good way to die. Try to keep, try to go shot for shot with the Australians. A great way to end up dead in a gutter. We're not going to argue that one. Yeah, that, that would be an appropriate finish for the for the guy. But it makes you wonder if something a little bit more nefarious happened or maybe something health-wise happened. Maybe that trick shoulder finally gave out, old chap. Back to the article. A great benefit was given. The theater was tendered free of charge, and all the wrestlers and athletes in that part of the world volunteered their services. The benefit netted between $800 and $900. Whistler's remains were buried in one of the best cemeteries in Australia, and over 2,000 people attended the funeral. I highly doubt that. There's not even that many people in Australia. Yeah, totally, let alone that many that would be willing to, like, donate money. These are the... Colony of thieves, man. Let's be honest here. No, no. Yeah, it's like it's like this was not the death of Superman. This was a fucking wrestler, a traveling wrestler who died there uh, drunkenly. Thousands of people did not show up. They might have been. They might have just been there. Maybe there was a bar at the cemetery, and everybody was just getting drunk. I'm really painting Australians as alcoholics, but prove me wrong, Australia. Prove me wrong. Well, let's be fair. The world were alcoholics back in the 1880s. Oh, this is absolutely true. Yeah, it's like they were all just drinking like corn whiskey that the, 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 the FDA would never approve of today. Yeah, and I bet it was delicious. And that's, this is, maybe this is, shoot, maybe this is how Whistler went down. And instead, he got into some back alley argument about gambling with some pissed off drunk kangaroo. Back to the article. 
This was not all. These good-hearted people erected a monument over his grave on which is inscribed Clarence Whistler, born in Dill Country, Indiana, USA, died in Milbourne, 1885, the peer of all wrestlers. What was left of the money was sent to Whistler's widow. Tom Cannon, the wrestler, speaks highly of the Australians and is authority for the above statements. The regal manners in which Spalding's round-the-world baseball tourists were entertained in Australia is another evident of the high regard in which Americans are held in the Antipodes. Long live Australia. I almost imagine, like, the final line is paid for by the Tourism Board of Australia. Yeah, really. I, I hear this whole thing being narrated in the voice of Crocodile Dundee. Yeah, it's, it, I see it as, like, a film strip to, like, lure in tourists. Like, hey, Americans, you, uh, you, you want to die somewhere where everybody's going to be real nice to you? Pick Australia. All it does is put over Australia, make all Australian wrestling fans and sporting fans out to be absolute saints, and then you know the, the person who brings this message is Tom Cannon, who I assume really wanted to be booked in Australia. Yeah, meanwhile, they're like hiding evidence, disposing of a body, putting a statue over the body so it can't be exhumed later. Like, you know, I mean, you know, it's, we'll just assume that they're good guys. Well, Bill, we'll just assume that much like his brother, he was just cannibalized after his death. Let's face it, a big meaty man who's uh, saturated to the gills with alcohol would make a fine roast. Yes, especially in Australian with that outback, outback seasoning, darling. It's delicious. And they did get the birthplace slightly wrong. I love Tom Cannon throwing dirt on him regarding his death, putting over Australia. And more information would continue to come in. On October 5th, 1889, Washington Evening Star reported his death as pneumonia. Though the Philadelphia Inquirer on December 23rd claimed it was from, quote, the effects of drinking two dozen square bottles of champagne and taking a shower bath between each bottle, which feat he had made a good-sized wager to perform. So they're claiming he drank 23 bottles of champagne and was spraying the rest of them on himself like a fucking maniac. I mean, that is a way to do it, I guess. So we were right. He did die trying to keep up drinking with the Australians. Accidentally right, but right nonetheless. That's the only way I ever am. The obituary in the Valley Spirit Weekly led with, quote, Clarence Whistler leaves the arena for good. Aww. Andre Cristal, in his fluff interview, told the story as, quote, the Melbourne enthusiast gave the American a banquet at which the wine flowed like rain. Whistler was a convivial soul, and in the excitement of the unguarded moment, he seized the rim of a cask of wine in his teeth and by sheer strength lifted it upon the adjacent table. The next morning, he complained of soreness in his chest, and that night he was seized with a chill, which developed into acute pneumonia. Three days later, he was a corpse. Yeah, that'll do it. He's telling these crazy stories and from part one about meeting Whistler where he was a strong man who picked up a chair with Crystal in it by his teeth and parading him around. I don't know where bite strength became such a symbol of manliness, but it's a weird fucking thing, but he was sticking to it. But it seems like this was the case. Whistler had problems with alcohol. He loved to party. He loved a good time. And he found it in Australia. He couldn't keep up. He tried showing off, and it killed him. Well, you know, this is a way to go out like a champ. You know, he, 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 he died how he lived, and he, you know, that's a pretty awesome way to go out. He died as he lived. Drunk as shit. Yes. <laughs> 
and and I don't want to like be you know I don't want to take anything away from substance abuse problems, but this is a day where alcohol was not very good quality. You didn't have like a governor government inspection making sure it wasn't ninety percent dead rats with rocket fuel. It was really strong stuff. It was poisonous stuff. And yeah, it was very easy to drink yourself to death because you're essentially drinking rubbing alcohol with some maple syrup in it. Yeah, especially like, keep in mind too, your body might have over a long time acclimated to a certain type of poison in the way that it's done in the States. Then you go to a completely different part of the world where it's not, you know, it's completely different shit. Maybe that was their plan all along. Australia, you crafty country. Boy, taking a little bit of poison so that when it comes down to a poison off, you're the one that walks away alive because you're used to it? Inconceivable! Yes. Well, I, you know, I, I, you know what isn't inconceivable, though, is that Muldoon is like, yeah, serves him right. That dirty, oh, yeah. You, that dirty drunkard. Yeah, you just know that there was, there was probably an interview that I couldn't find of Muldoon being like, you know, I tried to steer him right. Yes. You know, I tried to do that. But too bad he was just an irredeemable person, and I'm such a good person for even trying. If he had just listened to me, fuck you. Boy, it's really funny to look back at our first episodes where we're like, oh, William Muldoon seems awesome. And here we are two years later, like, fuck this guy sideways. Fuck him in the ass with the biggest wooden dick you can find. Fuck him. Because, yeah, we're, you know, we learned so much about him from our series about wrestling in the 20s. If you haven't listened to that, go listen to it. We learned more about him in this storyline. And it's just fun. Once again, you learn more about a person. You see that person more in whole. In a way, this is, in a way, this is almost like William Muldoon's story, just told from the perspective of, of it's like it's like a Batman story told by the Riddler. Yeah, exactly. It just shows the perspective where from the you know the first episodes we ever did on the show were about Muldoon. And he was painted as like the the hero and the and sort of like the guy who brought in the new era. But, you know, it's kind of like it's, the parallels to Hogan are very similar because it was like he was this this pillar of, of perceived sort of, you know, righteousness. And then as time has gone on, it turns out he was really kind of a dick. He was indeed. And we're at the end of our time. We're at the end of the story, thankfully. It's just a nice little two-parter. Um, so we're going to come back at you with some more tales of wildness next time. In the meantime, please like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Instagram. I like to post to the crazy articles and headlines that I find about men like this. And if you're on a platform where you can rate and review, please do so, as we kind of hope you like us enough for a five-star review. And if not, why did you listen this long into the show for fuck's sake? Yeah, what's your problem? Don't make me pull out the finger the finger shooters. Pew pew! You better get a five-star review. He'll do it too. He's crazy. I've seen him do it. So we'll be back next time with more stories of the past, more tales from the Hippodrome Express. And for Chago Bronson, I'm Nick Gossert. We'll talk to you then. Peace out, nerds. Cut, print, Australian death martini. <laughs>